0: This morning, we continue our fall series on the, on the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. We started this by looking at some background from the book of Acts, the record of early church history. And we find that Paul planted the church in the city of Ephesus in the mid-50s, and he ended up spending more time preaching the gospel in that city than he did anywhere else during his entire life. Years later, in around 61 or 62 A.D., Paul is in a Roman prison sitting on death row, and he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 3, shows our position in Christ. It's a a statement of our identity as sinners who have been rescued by the sacrifice of the Son, Jesus, on the cross. And that's why our first series graphic focuses on the root system, uh, the subtitle being The Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. That's how the hymn goes. And then the second half of the letter, represented in the next graphic, it lays out practice in Christ, chapters 4 through 6, what it looks like to live out this identity. And so we'll see the tree in its fullness, uh, representing the church, in action, in relationship, but a lot of foundation laying first. Um, And we'll start diving into the heart of chapter 1 this morning, starting in verse 3. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, these are marvelous things that we have the privilege of reading and thinking upon and treasuring as truest of all truths. So we pray that that same Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, that that Spirit, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, would open our eyes we might see this truth, that we might not be blinded by its glory, but that we would be in awe of Your plan of salvation. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First question I'll ask uh, to help us get started is, where's my blessing? Where's my blessing? Paul does not waste time after his introduction. He takes a deep breath and lets loose with this single, epic, run-on sentence. Verses 3 through 14 in the original Greek language in which the New Testament was written is one sentence, one deep breath, one outpouring of what is amazing and astounding Paul's mind and heart as he looks at the treasures of the gospel. He starts with praise to God the Father who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's a strong word he uses there, every. He's emphatically saying God has not forgotten or ignored anything that delights your heart. He has, past tense, provided every spiritual blessing. And the question you might be thinking is, so where are those blessings? Why is my life not a little bit better than it is? Why do I so often feel stressed rather than blessed? Where are every spiritual blessing? And since you probably have not heard a good enough answer to those rhetorical questions, it's possible that either you're far from God, arms crossed, um, reluctantly here in church, keeping Him at a distance. Or perhaps you're here willingly, but emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, there's a half-hearted devotion towards God. That can change quickly if things work out for the better, but if God continues to disappoint as He has in your life, then that half-hearted nature, that arm's distance reality will only continue. Every spiritual blessing in Christ, reading stuff like that, so often stirs a bit of cynicism rather than an assurance of faith. If you're wondering where every spiritual blessing in Christ can be found, if, if these qu- kinds of questions ring true just a little bit, I'd like to ask you a question in response. And and more accurately, pastor and author John Piper would ask you this. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Everything you ever want. The idyllic picture of paradise. Add whatever you want to His lists towards the beginning of the paragraph. Color in. Fill in the blanks. But could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there, but everything else were? If you'd honestly say yes, or if there's half-hearted conviction behind your no, it makes perfect sense how you might be wondering deeply how Paul can really say that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let me say it differently. If that picture of a Christ-less heaven has any appeal in your heart, if it does not strike you as dark and empty, as an illusion of paradise, as a false promise, a facade, an imposter, then it's easy to predict spiritual unhealth in your life, such as ongoing ingratitude, prayerlessness, Spiritual discontent, a lack of joy. It's because you don't know or you don't fully trust enough what every spiritual blessing in Christ really involves. Paul, writing this from death row, doesn't seem all that worried that losing his head might affect his confidence in every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's about to die. He's about to be executed, and yet he writes this without a hint of doubt, without holding anything back. We, Christians in Ephesus, we, Christians at GRC, have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And by the way, I'm going to die tomorrow, but that doesn't change a thing. It actually strengthens his conviction. You know, we tend to think, yeah, I know the Apostle Paul was a unique, Spirit-filled, apostle, and I know he maintained his joy in the midst of sufferings, but God, my boss, my car, my aching back, my little hangnail, those are all getting in the way of my happiness. Where is my blessing? And so often we live like John Piper knows we live, that we would take heaven with all of those solutions and fixes to our problems and we might not mind if Christ were not there. Paul does say something we tend to miss. He mentions that every spiritual blessing is in the heavenly realms, right in the middle of verse 3. Now, when he says in the heavenly realms, he doesn't mean that the follower of Christ receives blessings somewhere else, you know, out there in the clouds. He doesn't mean that Every follower of Christ is going to get something when we get to heaven on the last day in the future and there's nothing now. He doesn't mean that at all. When he says that these spiritual blessings are in the heavenly realms, he's talking about the spiritual dimension of life that is just as real as the earthly and material dimension of life, the unseen realities that surround us, not merely the seen But the problem is if you think in merely earthly terms with earthly eyes, you'll say, hey, God, where's my blessing? Pay attention to what I need. Fix what is broken in my life. Change these circumstances that are are causing me distress, and then I'll recognize that you've blessed me. But if you think increasingly with a heavenly Perspective with spirit-filled eyes, with eyes that notice by faith a spiritual realities, then you just might begin to see that as you trust in and follow this Savior. God has already solved your greatest problem, and He has already applied a measure of resurrection power to your life here and now. The key is that every spiritual blessing is last two words in verse 3, in Christ. That's where we go secondly. In Christ talks about our union with Christ. If I were to ask you, why would God ever let you into heaven? There are two typical answers. One is, and I hear this, um, you know, I'm not sure He would because If God is God, He knows everything that I've ever done, everything I've thought, everything I've said, and I'm not sure I would qualify. That's a legitimate, honest answer. And there's a bit of spiritual health behind that, honesty. You know, I'm not a cleaned up person. The the second answer that sounds very different is actually the same. And the second different that I hear a lot more often is, well, I, I think God would because I'm a pretty good person. I, I've not done any horrible things, not killed anybody. I'm not stolen. I'm, I'm fairly honest. I'm a good citizen. That's why I think. Those two very different answers at root reflect the same exact thinking the assumption that God accepts and loves a person who is good enough who is strong enough, who has lived a wise enough life. The only difference is which side of that line you think you fall on. I've done better than the standard, or I've done worse than the standard. They're each identical thinking. God accepts and loves people who do a good enough job, who rise to this certain level, and if you don't, you're out. If you do, you're in. Here's the problem. If... God has chosen us as His people. If He has predestined that we be redeemed, hold that thought, we'll come back to that in a few minutes, if those are the true, which Paul says are true here in Ephesians chapter 1 more than once, then how in the world can He keep that guarantee? How in the world can He avoid the occasional like, oops, I thought that was going to work out, but that person went that way? So, let me just pull out my predestination and put it aside. You know, that didn't work out. How in the world can He avoid that? Because we will screw it up every single time. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, real salvation requires a completely different approach. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Uh, I'll just summarize these themes real quickly. Paul says, God chose the foolish, not the wise. God chose the weak, not the strong. The rules of the game by which you think you are to be operating are completely different. How can God maintain His justice and at the same time allow lawbreakers and rebels like you and like me into His very presence? as a holy God. The key lies in these two words that Paul uses 10 times in these 12 verses in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, in Christ, or in Him, speaking about Christ. Uh, about 20 years ago, uh, I'm still not used to using that phrase without using a childhood story. Um, a little while back, Cedar and I went to a a naval Blue Angels air show in Philadelphia. And it was amazing seeing these uh, aerobatic stunts. But um, what we remember most was we were with a friend named Pete who had a close friend named Duke who was a naval officer in charge of the Blue Angels air show and on site that day. And so um, because we walked with Pete... Who walked with Duke, we got access to everything. It was as if we were insiders. It was as if we were part of the naval family, right? So, this association, uh, two steps removed, got us in. None of the security restrictions applied. This was pre 9 11, of course. Um, none of the uh, ticket quality or grades applied. We got everything, uh, we got to see everything that we wanted to see because we were with Duke. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are united to him by faith. We call that union with Christ. And that means you have already been, in the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 3, you have already been raised with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. Whatever happened to Jesus has happened to you. Whatever he has accomplished, it is as if you have accomplished. If Duke has access to this storage shed, we get access to this storage shed because we're with Him. How much more so in when this truth is sealed in the heavenly realms, in the court of God Himself, when He declares, you are in Christ. What that means is the Father looks at the Son who did live the perfect life of obedience and who did uh, die a perfect sacrificial death And he looks at the Christian who is united to Christ by faith and says, I'm going to treat you as if you lived a perfectly obedient life and you have never sinned. And in your sin, I'm going to treat you as if your sin has already been paid for on the cross because it was by the Son. All the benefits and all the privileges and all the intimacies and all the statuses that the Father would naturally, unblinkingly give to the Son are yours if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And all of that is represented in those two words, in Christ. In that 1 Corinthians 1 passage, Paul writes this, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. You're never going to be able to stand before the King and say, I'm good enough. But you can, if you trust in Jesus, stand before the judge of all the earth, the King of all kings, and say, He was good enough, and I'm with Him. In Christ, united to him by faith, did you Peter Wong demonstrate wisdom in living? No. But Jesus is my wisdom. Were you righteous? Perfectly so. No. But Jesus is my righteousness and my holiness and my redemption and the Father looks upon me and he says, "You are my son in whom I love." You whom I love in you. I am well pleased. I'm still a screw-up. I'm still a lawbreaker. But because I'm in Christ, the Father sees me as He sees His perfect Son. In the heavenlies, in a court of jurisdiction that extends over all of creation, that, in Christness, has become your Identity, your every spiritual blessing that promises life and life abundant and life in glory, even if every earthly blessing seems like it is absent or just beyond your reach. If you don't trust Christ, you're not united to Him and you're on your own before the throne of the King to answer for your life and there are no good answers to provide to Him. That leads us, lastly, to chosen for adoption. This is how the run-on sentence in in verses 3 to 14 break out. Paul praises God the Father for every spiritual blessing in Christ, and then he lays out three main parts of that blessing. He says, you were chosen for adoption by the Father, you were redeemed for unity by the Son, and you were sealed for inheritance by the Spirit. Chosen, redeemed, sealed. It it takes Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to pull this off. Every member of the Trinity has a role to play in this salvation plan that is still being carried out and will come to its fulfillment when Jesus returns on the last day. Now, this may be one of the most foolish things ever spoken by a preacher, but I'm just going to touch on that first one on that list, which we can call the doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of of election. It's reflected in these words in verse 4. It's repeated again in verse 11, for He chose us in Him, for the Father chose us in the Son. If I don't get away with this and my ministry career is over, GRC, I just want to say it was lovely being with you for 13 years… I've enjoyed every minute of it, and there's no um, bad feelings. Um, God's choice of His people, predestination, it's not a doctrine that we teach and defend because it's popular. It never will be. It is a doctrine that is good, and that brings God's people assurance. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. It's not a doctrine that some church traditions hold to, and therefore, we're just going to follow along because it's part of the package. No, this is a consistent truth that is laid out clearly in the Bible, and I want to give you just a few examples, not all of which are the Apostle Paul. We'll start with Jesus Himself, who says in John chapter 6, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. There's a lot of assurance in those words. It's the Father's initiative, Jesus says, that leads to salvation. It's not that certain people figure it out. It's not that certain people qualify themselves. They rise above the the line and they get in because Jesus goes on to say this in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. So the presence and power of sin that universally affects every single human being drives us away from God Not towards him. Later in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul will say, You were dead in your sins. A dead person cannot help themselves become alive again. There's no self resuscitation technique, right? There's no self defibrillation paddles. You need someone else to initiate and intervene from the outside. The inability of all of humanity to choose God to choose life, is the critical backdrop for this part of every spiritual blessing, and this part number one that Paul chooses in his list of these blessings. In Acts chapter 13, Paul's preaching in a place called Pisidian Antioch, and the Gentiles, Luke the author of Acts tells us, respond in a significant manner, and Luke says, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Who designated them for salvation? God did. And that's why Paul's preaching was effective. One more place, in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this, "'We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son.'" Now, some people take that passage and say, aha, you see, God foreknew. He looked through His divine time telescope to see who was going to believe, and that's what this means. But there are two words here. God foreknew. He also predestined. Why predestine something that you already see is going to happen on its own, if you will? More importantly, um, when we come across the idea or the verb, the action of knowing throughout the Bible. Knowing is never merely intellectual. It's never merely cognitive, just up here, I know certain things, I know facts and figures. No, knowledge in the Bible is personal and relational. And so, verse 29, we really can take it this way, for those God foreloved, He also predestined. The foreloving is His Father's heart of compassion and mercy that He intended to exhibit from the creation of the world. He foreloved us, and therefore He predestined that some would come to a saving knowledge of Him. Why is item number one chosen for adoption by the Father? Why is number one on the list of every spiritual blessing. Why is it so difficult to swallow? I've heard some of these objections over the years. I've had some of them myself. Let me just share a few. It makes free will seem like a joke. If God determines what's going to happen, what's the point of trying, living, deciding, makes free will seem like a joke. Secondly, it doesn't seem fair. Why choose some and not others? Why doesn't God, for that matter, choose all? Why does there have to be a picking and choosing? You know, it, seems, it's, it feels like a parent who says, this child is my favorite and this child is going to inherit everything. That's, what, that's how it strikes so many of us, right? It's not fair. It's contrary to the loving heart of God. And I'll add a third which is more of an educated guess. I've never heard this from anyone, but I think it's pretty commonly out there. I think most of us are uncomfortable being in any situation, let alone um, a topic that has eternal relevance. I I think we're uncomfortable being in a situation where we have nothing to our credit, nothing to stand on, nothing with which to answer, nothing... uh, that gives us any basis for looking down on others, for feeling superior, for exhibiting any pride. And therefore, if this is true, pride must die. There is no basis for comparison. You're no better than anyone else. But that bothers us, because surely I'm better than a terrorist, And surely I'm better than a child molester, and surely I'm better than a serial killer. But would you, if it were not for the initiative of God, in mercy and compassion, in rescuing you? I'll try to address these objections when we circle back to um, the doctrine of election in a couple of weeks. But for now, I I want you to see that this truth highlights a core difference. Uh, between Christianity and other world religions. For example, the Muslim or the Buddhist, Mohana uh, outlining uh, the the religion of Islam today in the adult Sunday school at 10 a.m. and then continuing next Sunday. Um, The Muslim or the Buddhist, for example, claim that identity for him or herself, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Buddhist, through effort, through diligence, through the constant following of rules and engaging in ritual. But the Christian, in great contrast, is given his or her identity from God. It's a gift. It can't be earned or deserved. It can't be generated. It can't be worked at. The Christian, Jesus says in John chapter 6, has been given by the Father to the Son, entrusted to the Son. Jesus says this in John chapter 6, all those that the Father gives me will come to me, and I shall lose none of all those He has given me. It isn't, well, I'm going to rescue you by dying on the cross for you, but now you better prove that you deserve it. Jesus says, I shall lose none of all that the Father has given to me it's sealed for eternity. It's guaranteed. This, this doctrine is sure and certain. And if we can't deserve salvation, quite frankly, we can't undeserve salvation. If our goodness or badness was irrelevant in God extending mercy, our goodness or badness is not going to make or break us as Christians. Now, please hear me. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter how you live your life. It does matter a lot, and we're going to talk about some of that in the weeks to come. Uh, let me um, start wrapping this up with this um, illustration from an old pastor named Harry Ironside. Lived about a, a century ago. He uh, described becoming a Christian as walking through a narrow door. And as you approach the door, the front of the door has a sign that uh, contains the words of Jesus' invitation from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so it requires a response. Right? Invitation? Okay, I'm coming. You enter the door, you close the door, you're on the other side. If you look back, the back of the door has another sign, but this is a sign of assurance. This is a sign that emphasizes God's initiative in salvation. And that side says, from our text, in love, He predestined us for adoption. How can both be the case? We're going to talk about that over the next few weeks, okay? but where's my blessing? That was the first question I asked us to consider. Where's my blessing? If you're looking with merely earthly eyes and not with spiritual eyes, you will miss all of God's blessings that start with the plan of the Father from the creation of the world to save sinners through the death of His Son. If you don't know this Jesus, then here's my question for you this morning. Don't you want a love that pursues you Don't you want a love that promises to accept you no matter what you've done, no matter what you're like? This is the offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the free offer of salvation. And that love is only the beginning of every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, then Paul says you're united to Christ, you're in Him. But maybe you're struggling with pain or failure or rejection, or discontent. And the the gospel, through the Apostle Paul, would say, look again with spiritual eyes to realize and to cherish what is most true in the heavenly realms, in a court of opinion that alone matters because it's God the judge declaring this, that you are chosen in Christ, and that union promises you every satisfaction, greatest treasure, deepest intimacy now as well as for eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, we marvel at gospel truths that we can hardly begin to fathom. gives us a brain cramp, Lord, but your Spirit is sufficient to give us understanding, and more importantly, to prompt us to, as we sung already, fall on our knees in adoration, in humility, in true worship. You are God, there is no other, and your love for us is without any explanation. We give you praise through your Son, Jesus. Amen.